Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask you to humble us under your word today, that you would exalt your name, that you would make the glorious reality of the gospel so plain and so evident that any element of boasting or prideful actions would seem ridiculous and foolish and shameful. And then drive us, I pray, back to the glorious hope that comes from knowing that we live by promise and not performance. Help me to make this text clear and plain. And I pray that today there might be some who would see our need to turn from the seeds of pride and arrogance and others who today would be the day that they will see you and receive you and be brought from darkness to light. So help us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards described a particular sin in graphic and alarming language. He called it the worst and first cause of error. The main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. The chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. He called it the main handle by which Satan takes hold of Christians to hinder the work of God. Edwards viewed this sin as so serious and so foundational that to try and deal with other sins without dealing with this one first was, frankly, an exercise in spiritual futility. So what sin is this destructive, this alarming, and this pervasive? It's the sin of pride. I'm sure that you are familiar with this foe. You know lots of people who struggle with it. You have friends who think way too high of themselves. The people around you who look down on you. Those people who are so full of themselves and yet they have no idea how blind they are in their arrogance. And, and that's the problem with pride. A proud person doesn't know that they're proud. Do you know why? Because they're proud. Pride is deceptively difficult. But there is a particular form of pride that is exceptionally egregious. And that is the subject we're going to talk about this morning. And that is spiritual pride. It is a form of pride, a hybrid of pride, a, a species of pride. You, you see, it's one thing for a sinful, unbelieving, worldly person to be full of him or herself. That, that actually kind of makes sense. You'd expect that people who have no heart for God and... No spiritual concern to be arrogant. After all, with an empty heart, what else would fill their heart except self? So pride for a lost, worldly person is awful, but at one level it's understandable. But wouldn't you agree with me that spiritual pride is worse? When a person uses spirituality to feed their pride, there's just something inherently wrong about that. 
the spiritually proud person, what they do is they take God, they take the pursuit of Him, the love of Him, spiritual obedience to Him, and they use it not as the ultimate means of worshiping God, but rather as a means of worshiping self. It's one thing to take the gifts that God gives and fall in love with the gifts or use those gifts to worship yourself. It's an entirely different matter to take God and try and use Him to worship oneself. Edwards describes pride like an onion. You peel off one layer and there's another underneath. He warns about the many forms and shapes of spiritual pride. And our text today in 1 Timothy 6 identifies two expressions or two examples of spiritual pride, particularly located with two groups of people, slaves and false teachers. In the case of slaves... Paul attempts to show us how the gospel should create humble obedience to believing and unbelieving masters. In the case of false teachers, he aims to show us that the root and fruit of pride in their life has all sorts of manifestations. So what I want to do today is attempt to show you how Paul applies the gospel to these two groups of people and then see what warnings we can pull out for our own selves. So first, regarding slaves, Paul says about them that they are spiritually free, but they are to be obedient. The first two verses of chapter 6 speak directly to slaves about how they are to respond to their believing and unbelieving masters. And as we read the text, we can deduce that some slaves were apparently taking their spiritual position that they had in Christ and negatively applying it. The the danger here was that their spiritual pride, because of what they had received, would cause them to treat believing and unbelieving masters in a way that didn't fit with the gospel. So they were hearing about the gospel, and then Paul wanted them to live out the gospel in regards to their life the rest of the week. Now, before we dive into the specifics of Paul's teaching here on pride, I want to address briefly another problem in this text, and that is the problem of slavery. I want to address it in this text and in the rest of the Bible, and this is important to talk about because it seems when you read this text and others in the New Testament that Paul completely goes around the issue, or worse, it almost seems at times as if he endorses slavery. Because he never takes a really hard line on it, he just says how you are to deal with it. And so therefore, some people take this as a way to discredit the Bible. So what Bible doesn't even talk against slavery. And understanding how to deal with this is important as well. Some of you, when you read the New Testament, really struggle with the fact that the Bible doesn't really deal with this issue in a way that is all that clear at times. So I want to help you understand some things about this issue. Let me first begin by just acknowledging the importance of this issue emotionally at so many levels. Even the ESV wrestles with this. The translation I have, the edition, says, let all who are under a yoke as slaves. And then a newer edition, it renders it as bondservants. Why? Well, because 
the translators are trying to wrestle with what do you call this Greek word, especially in light of all of the understandable emotional baggage that comes with the word slave. In fact, I imagine that some of you, would you read your Bible and you see that word slave and it just, it, it's hard to know how to think about that word in the Bible. And that is because slavery leaves a scar on every culture that has ever embraced it. Think, think about a scar for a moment. A scar is something that you have because there's been a wound. And that wound was because of a traumatic event. And its presence, the presence of that scar, is a regular reminder of the traumatic and painful event of the past. That's why I think it's appropriate to call slavery a scar. Let me illustrate this for you. I asked my wife's permission to share this. Above her right eyebrow, she, in her eyebrow, she has a scar that she received when she was in high school while playing in a three-on-three basketball tournament in northern Michigan. A major tornado came through the city of Belding, and uh, at least one, maybe two people were killed in this tornado, and she was caught in the middle of it, such that while everyone was running for cover as she was, a bucket, a metal bucket, was flying through the air, hit her in the head, nearly knocked her unconscious, and split her head. To this day, she has a little scar above that eyebrow, and it's if you bump the scar, if she hits it or something, it, it's sore and it still hurts. But even more so, the environment that created the scar has left an ongoing emotional mark for her with even the word tornado. So the scar not only hurts physically, but there's also an emotional connection as it relates to the event of that scar. In the same way, slavery and the inerrant racism that went with it is a sensitive and painful scar for many people in our culture. That scar may have healed, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't still hurt. For instance, regardless of what you think of the Trayvon Martin case in Sanford, Florida, just listen to the frustration of the African-American community with a sense of injustice in regards to what's taken place in their city Racism may be better than what it used to be, but it is still painful, and we still have a long way to go. So I don't want to ignore the word slave or bondservant out of a concern for the text, and also for my brothers and sisters who hear the word slave, and for them it's like the word tornado for my wife. It's a scar, but it hurts, and there is a traumatic event in the past. Let me also acknowledge that the Old Testament candidly permitted certain forms of slavery. And the old, in the New Testament, the Bible never specifically, um, or rather the Bible often seems to endorse or kind of go around the issue of slavery with no clear condemnation in certain particular parts of the New Testament. This verse, these two verses, verses 1 and 2, would be a great example of that. So what do we say to this? Let me just give you some thoughts to help you understand this issue. First, the Old Testament permitted some forms of slavery for those who had to pay off their debts and they voluntarily went into service or for those who were captured in war as opposed to killing them. However, the law regulated slavery to prevent abuse and kidnapping was punishable by death. So, the kind of slave trade connected with our country would have directly violated the Old Testament law, no question. Secondly, the New Testament 
clearly condemns those who trafficked in slavery as lawless and disobedient. 1 Timothy 1.10 calls them enslavers and says that those who do this violate God's law and his heart. Further, historically, Christianity eventually led to the abolition of slavery. Now, this didn't happen, admittedly, as fast as what it certainly could have. And there were well-known Christians who unfortunately owned slaves. But nothing helped to topple the institution of slavery more than the Christian worldview of the image of God and the freedom that comes through the gospel. One author says, The more fully Christianity is realized in any society, the more thoroughly will slavery be destroyed. There's another piece you need to understand, that culturally, slavery in Rome was very different than what it was in America. Slavery in Rome was not entirely based upon race. Some folks were voluntary slaves. Many were slaves due to economic hardships. Additionally, slaves in Roman culture could hold important roles in business or government. Some worked in highly skilled and professional areas like education or medicine. Further, slavery was not always permanent. And finally, what Paul does, particularly in this text and in others like it, is to help slaves know how they should conduct themselves in the midst of a culture that's already filled with slavery. So you still have to live biblically, even though this institution may be wrong. And so he attempts to help them know how to think and deal with something that is difficult and wrong. Without approving slavery in all of its forms, Paul gives pastoral counsel to people who are enslaved. So this is how we should think about this issue. The Bible doesn't condone the wicked and inhumane treatment of people who are enslaved because of embedded racism. Rather, it tries to help people know how practically to live in a culture that is imperfect. Does that make sense? It's important. Because I don't want to just pass over this word as if it isn't there or as if it doesn't make some within our congregation go, Ah, what? So what does he say here? He says in verse 1, look at it, Let all who are under a yoke of slavery, or a yoke as bondservants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So Paul identifies two scenarios as it relates to these slaves and as it relates to what the gospel does. See, what he's saying here is that underlying this issue in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a fundamental reality about the cross. And the beautiful thing that the gospel does is that it saves people regardless of their background, their status, or their ethnicity. This, in point of fact, is revolutionary. Listen to Galatians 3.27. Paul says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So underlying this issue, undergirding the church, is this beautiful reality that the gospel makes united people all, makes people united in in a family called the church, part of the family of God. Even though from different backgrounds, different races, different socioeconomic status. The fact is, is that the level, ground at the cross is level. This is what the gospel does. And it is revolutionary. 
And you can imagine how revolutionary it would be to have Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free. They're all worshiping together outside of the church. There's so many barriers and wall in church. Those barriers are gone. It's all one under the beauty and the umbrella of who Christ is. There's still men. There's still women. There's still slaves. They're still free. But there was another uniting reality among them, and that was that they were now one in Christ. But you can imagine what would happen if you took this too far. What would happen, for instance, if a slave used his newfound identity in Christ and would say to his master, I have learned in my assembly called Christianity that in Christ there is no difference between us and therefore I don't need to listen to you anymore. What would that say about the gospel? What would that communicate about the essence of the teaching of the church? Or for that matter, what would happen if a brother... And a brother, we're worshiping in the same church, and one brother has a responsibility over another, and inside the church, they're worshiping together, and outside the church, the the brother who's supposed to serve the other brother says, I don't need to serve you anymore because we are equal in Christ. Paul anticipates that this freedom in Christ could lead some to a proud triumphalism rather than humble service. See, here's the thing, friends. The gospel frees you not so you can triumph over others. That's what Jesus will do. Rather, the gospel frees you to lay down your life in service for others. You understand the difference? It's enormous. The gospel, don't you leave here today thinking, because I'm free in Christ, I'm better than everybody. Because I'm free in Christ, I don't have to listen to anybody. I don't have to worry what anybody thinks about me. And while, while there may be an element of truth embedded in that, the application of it is horribly off. That the gospel frees us not to triumph over people. The gospel frees us to serve people. That's what Serve Weekend is all about. It frees us to be able to serve and serve in ways that are hard. So regarding unbelieving masters, notice how... Paul plays this out. We assume they're unbelieving in verse 1 because in verse 2 he identifies specifically how to handle believing masters. So with these unbelieving masters, they are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That word honor, this is now the third time that we've heard this word. Saw it in verse 3 with widows, verse 17 with elders. It means to treat with respect, to ascribe worth or value to someone because of the position that God has put them in. It means that you know that there is a connection between honoring God by honoring those who are in authority over you. In other words, show me someone who has a problem with authority, and I'll show you someone who has a problem with God. The idea is you submit to those who are in authority out of reverent submission to God. He says they are to regard their masters this way. The meaning of the word regard means that they are to treat them this way even if they're not actually worthy of it. They're to consider them, they're to regard them worthy of all honor even if their masters aren't very honorable. And a failure to do this, look at verse 1, that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The word means blaspheme. Or to speak evil. You can imagine if somebody claims that they are a gospel-loving person, but there's no heartfelt service of others, it would blaspheme the gospel. People would say, why would I want to believe what you believe? Look how you act and live. So there's a connection between how we live and the reputation of the gospel. Let me show you this in another passage. Look at 1 Timothy 2. 1 Peter 2, excuse me. 1 Peter 2, I think, is the signature text on how you live 
in a scenario where you're being treated unfairly and how you live through that to the glory of God for the fame of the name of Jesus. This is a really important text. Important enough for us to read verses 13 to 25. Just notice the worldview of the Apostle Paul as it relates to suffering. He says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake, this is 1 Peter 2.13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. I mean, live in the gospel. Live in it. Enjoy it. Live it. But then he says this, Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor, who, by the way, was a creep at that time. In the Greek, that's creepos. <laughs> Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And notice this, friends. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Got an unfair boss? An unjust person in your life. You're to do good and be, be subject to them. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten it for it if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see how central the gospel is? If you understand the gospel, Paul says, then you're going to live this out even with unbelieving masters. Peter says, if you see the gospel, you're going to live this out even with those who are unjust and you're going to look to Christ and you're going to be like him. And when you don't know what to do and people treat you unfairly, you're going to be like him. When reviled, you don't revile in return. When you suffer, you don't threaten. Instead, you trust your soul to the one who judges justly. That in tearful submission, you say, Jesus, one day you're going to make this all right. One day you're going to fix this. And until now, I give this to you. I'm not going to use the gospel to triumph. That's your job. I'm going to use the gospel to serve. Well, friends, beware of the subtle spiritual pride that sees no connection between what you hear on this day and how you live at home or work or the community. Beware of the subtle pride that says, oh, that's a great sermon, but that's nothing to do with how I live. That's a great verse in first peter but that doesn't relate to what's really going on in my home beware of the subtle pride that puts a barrier between what you hear in this room and what you do in the room of your house back to first peter 6 what about believing masters verse 2 addresses this those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds That they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. It would be equally disrespectful to believing masters to be disrespectful to them, after all, they're brothers. 
I mean, you can hear the argument, can't you? Something like, hey, we worship together on Sunday. We're one in Christ. So you have no right to be my leader or my boss. You can't tell me what to do. We're one in Christ. And this attitude is spiritual pride. A spiritual position that you use to justify a lack of love. And Paul says that you should be considerate of these brothers. In other words, love for God... Understanding his gospel should result in a love of brother that makes you a better servant. That you could say, I know that we're equal in Christ, but the reality is I get to serve you because you are my brother. You see, those who have experienced the beauty of undeserved grace, meaning that God has counted them righteous in Christ, even though they're not, are free to serve other people. Why? Because they know everything they have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is what? Nothing. Everything you have, you've received. So then Paul continues. So why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you take the good God, good gifts that God has given you? Go, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. Or why do you take God's grace and now say, Now you cannot tell me what to do. This is what pride does. It causes us, friends, to act foolishly. Listen again to what Edwards says. Pride takes many forms and shapes and encompasses the heart like layers of an onion. When you pull off one layer, there's another underneath. Therefore, we need to have the greatest watch imaginable over our hearts with respect to this matter and to cry most earnestly to the great searcher of hearts for his help. He who trusts his own heart is a fool. What a contrast pride is to the vision of Paul in Philippians 2 and the essence of what Christ did in coming to earth. Listen to Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Just, just, just meditate on that verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being made in likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do you feel the weight of this? Nothing? How many things a day do you do out of selfish ambition? How many things do I, I read this text and I'm just like, God, I don't know how in the world to work this out because there are selfish ambition parts all over my soul. The gospel makes slaves free and obedient and humble. And it's beautiful. Now, false teachers. False teachers are self-deceived, and they are destructive. He now turns his attention to the problem of these false teachers. He says, teach and urge these things. He, he tells Timothy, shepherd your people, remind them of these things, push them on them, remind them of the importance of these truths. And here's why. Because our commitment to the gospel and putting down selfish ambition leaks. I promise you, you'll hear this. You, some of you are agreeing with this right now in your soul. You're like, yes, I need to do that. You'll get in your car, and it's like you won't even remember this sermon. 
Something will happen. You'll get mad. Something, your wife will choose the wrong restaurant to go out to eat. You, you, your kids, you can't get out of church fast enough. Someone will take your spot as you're pulling out. And it'll be the smallest, silliest little thing. And selfish ambition will just pop right out. We need to teach and urge these things because our sense of humility leaks. There are two manifestations of pride in these false teachers. Bad doctrine and sinful living. The first one, doctrine, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, dot, 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 so he starts by identifying their false doctrine. He, he says that their teaching didn't lead to personal godliness. It didn't accord with the words of Jesus. And yet Paul isn't specific about exactly what their false doctrine was. And that leads me to conclude that the essence of the problem of the false teachers was in regards to the gospel. They were somehow perverting the essence of what the gospel is. And, and by the gospel, in case you're not familiar with this term, or you know it, but you don't really know what it means, here's what I mean by the gospel. It means that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The good news of the Bible is this, is that we can do nothing to save ourselves, that we need another person's righteousness to be given to us, that somebody else has to die in our place, that we need someone else's goodness in order to make us righteous, The gospel means that true righteousness comes by faith, believing in Jesus, not by works, by belief, not in actions, by God's actions, not your own. It means that we live by promise, not performance. Now, this is glorious good good news. Unless, of course, you're full of yourself. And in that case, it's incredibly devastating. Because the gospel eliminates all boasting. The gospel obliterates all self-congratulation. It brings into submission arrogance. It takes away all human merit and all pride. A biblical, Christ-exalting understanding of the gospel cannot coexist with pride. Pride and grace are not just opposites. They are enemies. That's why Jesus uses the analogy of birth when he talks about conversion. Why birth? Because he knows what you know. No child comes out of the womb and says, look what I did. Pride and grace are enemies. Do you see the connection? The connection here is that false doctrine and pride are linked together in the same way that the gospel and humility are linked. That's why, that's why Paul says that if anyone doesn't embrace the gospel or if they teach a different doctrine, what does the text say? Look at the next phrase. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. There's the problem. So the gospel is simply the expression or the, the departure from the gospel is just the, the, the fruit of the actual issue. The actual issue is being puffed up and puffed up with conceit. The word conceit is a really strong word. It is a figurative expression that means to be crazy or demented. I mean, that just totally makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, seriously, you can look back on a time in your life when you were just so full of pride. I mean, you you can look back on that, right? Maybe like 30 years ago, 10 years ago, like last week, or maybe this morning at 7 o'clock. You look back on your life, and you see when you were just full, so full of pride, and you were doing 
dumb things, weren't you? You were saying stupid things. You thought you were all big and powerful and you're, you're pulling your own house down. You're destroying relationships. You can look back on your life and no doubt when you think of a season when you were so full of yourself, you say something like this. What was I thinking? That's crazy. And you know what? You were. You were absolutely crazy. You were insane. You were insanely filled with the love of yourself. So the idea and the warning here is that a person is so conceited that they are insanely arrogant. I mean, if you've got a friend who's just so full of themselves, you know you've thought this. You're like, what in the world are they doing? They're crazy. You're right. They are. But it's worse. Spiritually proud people lose their moorings. They do crazy things. They say crazy things. What's more, they risk the spiritual lives of people around them. It's not only that they are puffed up with conceit, but it also, the text says this, they understand nothing. So it's not only that their conceit is dangerous, but it's the fact that there is a total lack of understanding. They understand nothing. The person is as ignorant as they are arrogant. Listen. I have never met a person who knew they were a false teacher. Nobody ever said, hi, Mark, my name's Jim, and I'm a false teacher. I'd never heard of that. If if you're a false teacher today, I'd love to meet you. And invite you never to come back. But so, (laughs) false teacher's dangerous. Oh, I've never met someone who said, hey, my name is uh, Mike, and uh, I'm a legalist. Or someone say, hey, my name is uh, Sally, and um, I'm spiritually proud. Instead, what happens is this. They convince themselves that they are doing God's work. They are convinced that they're right and everyone else is wrong. They honestly believe that they have the answers for other people's problems. They think that if people just listen to them, the problems would all be solved. And while they talk about Jesus, the real love of their hearts is themselves. The sick thing they do is they use Jesus to make much of themselves, and it's straight up scary. Listen to me. This is what happens when pride trumps the gospel. And do you know how you know? Do you know what the signs are? You see this most clearly when you cross them, when you challenge them, or oppose them. Their their life is filled with conflict. In fact, Paul goes on and he describes some of the fruit. Notice the long list that Paul gives us in verses 4 and 5. Let's look at each of these phrases. He says they have an unhealthy craving for controversies. This, This person is always looking for a fight. They have an orientation towards confrontation because truth is not just something that they love and something that they savor. No, truth is actually a stepping stone to advance their spirituality and their superiority over other people. So when they learn a truth, it's not just a truth for them to savor, it's a truth for them to share so they can get up. There is an unhealthy craving for controversies. There's also, secondly, a quarreling about words. Not only is there this lust for knowledge, but there is a narrowness to their views. Everything is black and white. There is no grace. There's no balance. There's no margin. There's no wiggle room. It's their way or the highway. The person is constantly crusading for their cause or their viewpoint. Why? Because they have to be right. Because it's not about the truth. It's actually about them. And so if you say, well, I have a different viewpoint on that. They come after you. Why? Because they can't be wrong. Because there is no wrongness in their thraldom and in their kingdom. 
Envy. What is envy? Envy is the resentment of other people's gifts. This person has to be the center of everything, and the gifts of others make him or her insecure. So they can't celebrate the gifts of other people. It makes them nervous. This person could be, could be somehow invading on my territory. And then also it leads to dissension. Dissension, which is the conflict that arises from rivalry. It's the outward expression of inward envy. It's this envy thing's going on and on and on and on and on. And then ultimately it results in conflict and dissension, which is one of the signs. If you look around and you look at all these people, you've got all these people in your life, you constantly have conflict, that might be a little warning sign to you that the problem isn't everybody else. It might be you. Slander. Here's abusive speech that just comes out. It's intended to harm a person or to injure the other person's reputation. They have so much envy going on in their heart that all of a sudden something happens and whoop, something comes out. And even when they say, well, I didn't mean that, what they really mean is I didn't mean to say that out loud. That was going on there. They were saying that all the time in their heart. But now, whatever happened, they lost the ability to put the filter on and it just blew through the filter. Evil suspicions, measuring people up to see if they are competitors or threats, constantly looking over their shoulder to see who might threaten their position of spiritual power. Then there's constant friction, this idea of low-grade irritability, just wanting, just waiting rather to boil over. The idea is it's become a, a lifestyle or a pattern in their life, this, this ongoing dissension, this constant friction, and as a result, the tragedy, look at the text, it says that they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Here's the real tragedy, is that a spiritually proud person eats out their own soul, and it leaves them truthless and heartless. And then finally, greed, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul, no doubt, is talking about financial gain. These false teachers were doing it because of the money, but there's lots of other things that people try and gain besides money. For instance, they try and gain the esteem of others, prominence, people quoting you, being viewed as an authority, deference, the ability to control others. And the real sick thing that happens here is that people use religion, they use Jesus to try and give them what they want. Just think with me how, how crazy this is. We have sinful people who deserve nothing but judgment. And they use the ministry of God's grace to advance and glorify themselves. How wrong is it that we would take the beauty of God's story of deliverance of awful sinners and we would make it into a personal kingdom for our own advancement and our own power? Could there be anything worse? This is why Jesus is seriously on the backs of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were using God to make much of themselves. Please don't think for a moment that any of us are immune to this. I got done writing this section. I just struck in my soul because I see the seeds and the remnants of this in my soul. And I know you must too. Saw this list, got done writing it, went for a prayer walk. I just had to talk to God about this list and what it says about Him and me and the gospel. You may not even think of yourself as a teacher 
you might be tempted not to listen to the warning here, but I would encourage all of us to realize the path of spiritual pride and where it leads. Spiritual pride leads to self-deception and eventually destruction. So there's a contrast here that I want you to see, and I want you to see it really clearly. Brothers and sisters, we have to be aware of the subtleties of pride. We have to see how easily it can show up in our most basic and vital relationships. You may not be down the full path of becoming a false teacher, but I hope when you hear this list you tremble. Because I think if we're honest, we know, you know your heart, we know we could be just like that. So what do you do? Well, Edwards gives us a contrast between a proud person and a humble person. Let me read a few sections of what he says. Just listen to someone who spoke with such clarity. He says this, It is by spiritual pride that the mind justifies or defends and justifies itself in the errors and defends itself against light by which it might be corrected and reclaimed. In other words, you're sitting here and some of you are going, that doesn't apply to me, that applies to my spouse. That's the first sign that you're spiritually proud. The spiritually proud man thinks he is full of light already and feels he does not need instruction, so he is ready to ignore the offer of it. On the other hand, the humble person is like a little child who easily receives instruction. He is cautious in his estimate of himself, sensitive as to how liable he is to go astray. If it is suggested to him that he is going astray, he is most ready to check into that matter. He hears a sermon and he goes, Oh, Lord, let me think on that. Versus, man, i could get a tape of this for John. The spiritual proud person. Next, it causes one to speak of another person's sin. To speak of their enmity against God and His people or with laughter and levity or out of an air of contempt while pure Christian humility disposes them to either be silent about them or to speak of them with grief or pity. The spiritually proud person shows it in his fault-finding with the saints. They... That they are low in grace and how cold and dead they are and are quick to discern and take notice of their deficiencies. They, they see other people's issues so clearly, but the eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own that he is not apt to be very busy with other people's hearts. He complains most of himself and complains most of his own coldness and lowness in grace. See it? Next, it has been the manner of spiritually proud persons to speak of almost everything they see in others in the most harsh and severe language. But Christians who are but fellow worms ought to at least treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. Spiritual pride next takes great notice of opposition and injuries that are received and is prone to be often speaking of them and to be much in taking notice of their aggravation with an air of bitterness and contempt. They can't believe that people treat them this way. And they have this long list of all the ways that people treat them. And they are always talking about all these things that people have done against them. And they can't believe that they have treated me this way. When the fact of the matter is, if they really knew you, they would treat you this way. Right? So you have long lists. And the problem is you think you've got a right not to be offended. 
pure and unmixed Christian humility, on the other hand, causes a person to be more like his blessed Lord when reviled, quiet, not opening his mouth, but committing himself in silence to him who judges righteously. One under the influence of spiritual pride is more apt to instruct others than to inquire for himself and so naturally puts on airs of control. But the eminently humble Christian thinks he needs help from everybody. It'll test you when your kids rebuke you. Hey, Dad, I don't know if you should be doing that. You kids tell me what to do. You don't know nothing. Go back to your Sunday school class. And yet your children can speak powerfully. The eminent, humble Christian thinks he needs help from everyone, whereas he that is spiritually proud thinks everyone needs his help. Christian humility under a sense of another's misery entreats and beseeches, but spiritual pride tries to command and warn with authority. Do you see the contrast here, friends? So I want you to see the contrast, and then finally and ultimately, we have to continue to rehearse and preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to take ourselves back over and over to what the, what the Bible tells us, what the Bible tells us about who we are. And the Bible tells us that God is holy, that we are helpless sinners, that Jesus took my place, and that God treats me like Christ despite who I really am. And the beauty of preaching that message to your heart is it reminds you what God is like, what the cross is like, and what you needed. And the effect of that is you remember that everything I have, I've received. Everything that I've got has been given to me. Listen to me. Without receiving this gospel, without receiving Christ, there is no hope. For your self-centered soul. There's none. And yet there is beautiful hope in Christ. By receiving Jesus, everything changes. Your view of your sin, your view of yourself, and your view of everything in life. So grace-receiving people must always be on guard for the subtleties of spiritual pride. Why? Because what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? As we draw this service to a close, I, I want for you just to take a moment and to think with me about what God is saying today. I want you to think about what it is that God has placed in the Word of God for your benefit. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. An opportunity for you to say, God, today, I want to acknowledge that I need you to break down this issue of pride in my life. Remember that old hymn? I've asked Chuck to play it for us. Just as I am without one plea. In a moment, I want to just be able to pray for you. 
there's a sense going on in your soul that yes, I can see the remnants of this issue in my soul and in my heart. I want you to identify that today by simply standing. I just want to have a final prayer for you. And be able to say, God, these who are standing today have said, I see the remnants of this thing, God, and I, I want to continue to fight it. So if that would be your declaration, your prayer of your soul today, I want you to stand right now. We're just going to say, God, we're here. Maybe the best thing for you is to stay seated. That's not a problem, but just before God, you say, God, I see the remnants of this in my soul. And I just want to say to you, help me. Just as I am. Without one plea, I come. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today who by their standing are acknowledging that they, along with me, see the remnants and the seeds of this issue within our souls. We say to you how grateful we are for this gospel that changes everything about us and how sorry we are for the thousands of ways in which we take this gospel and make it about us. We repent today of varying species of pride. We ask you to humble us We ask you to help us to see the beauty of the gospel so we can serve others joyfully and not be so concerned about our own selves, our own hurts, our own issues. We don't want to go on the path of the false teachers or somehow take this message and not apply it in real world Christianity this week. So help those who are standing here today to say, God, I want to see the gospel clearly so I can live obediently. Strike things like evil suspicions and friction and greed and quarrels and envy and dissension and slander. Get those things out of our lives. Replace them with love and joy and peace. Help us, Lord Jesus. We need to live by promise, not performance. We ask all of this in the precious and holy name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Listen, if there's something else you need to pray about or some major thing going on in your life, these folks are up here to pray for you today. They'll be able to pour God's grace over you, all right? College Park, I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.